to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the Russian military withdrawing from Kyrgyzstan and what that means for the ongoing war in Ukraine. Also going to be discussing uh, uh, ICWA, also known as the Indian Child uh, Welfare Act, and going to be discussing some developments concerning the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, like I've said, I'm willing to be wrong about the Democrats getting utterly wiped out in the midterm elections. And true to my word, I will admit that I was wrong, sort of, because not losing as badly as you deserve to and should have sure isn't the same as winning. And that's pretty much what happened in the midterm election so far. President Biden said in a speech on Wednesday, quote, while any seat loss is painful, some good Democrats didn't win last night. Democrats had a strong night. We lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first term elections in the past 40 years. Now, despite Biden saying that the midterm results were a strong night for the Democrats, the truth is the party just didn't lose seats in the House of Representatives or as many, which is pretty common in electoral history. For example, in Barack Obama's first term, Democrats lost 63 seats in the House during the midterms. Republicans lost 40 seats in the House during the midterms during Trump's 2018 term. Former President Bill Clinton lost 53 seats in the House in his first midterm election. So what happened for Democrats Tuesday night was that they lost fewer seats in the House than any Democratic president first term in decades. That's it. They just lost less than 53 seats in the House. They didn't gain any seats. Well, they just didn't lose as many seats as the previous Democratic presidents. And how is that a strong night? It doesn't feel strong because, let's face it, it's not. Never mind the reality. Biden went on to say that it was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was good for America. Our democracy has been tested in recent years. But with their votes, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. Well, given the mixed bag of results from Tuesday night, I think the only thing that America has proven is that people were motivated to vote to protect a woman's right to abortion, you know, since the Democrats didn't bother to codify Roe when they had control of Congress, which they've actually had a few times. And in states where abortion is already protected, economic issues drove voters to the polls. If American voters showed anything... It's that it's still the economy, stupid, and also it's protecting human rights. Now, of course, GOP voters were also compelled to come out and vote for so-called pro-life candidates who promised to limit or criminalize abortion while also promising to cut social safety net programs so living kids and families can continue to survive. They don't care about the actual living. And I think the weakness of the Democrats' track record on the economy and on their ability to protect human rights made it that much easier to attack them on those issues and their weak candidates. 
as I think the improbable Senate runoff in Georgia between former Democratic Senate savior Reverend Raphael Warnock and morally and politically repugnant former college football star and completely improbable Republican candidate Herschel Walker shows Now, you and I know that Walker should be nowhere near anybody's elected office for anything. But the fact that white Christian voters in Georgia who claim to be pro-life would rather vote for a guy who paid for a few abortions, lied about it, didn't pay child support for a few kids that he claimed he didn't have, lied about it, claimed to be law enforcement and wasn't, lied about it, uh, they'd rather vote for him than an actual real Christian pastor of a real Christian church, well, that lets you know what these white Christian nationalists really care about. And that's power and control of the Senate, not protecting life or their alleged faith as they claim. And honestly, we wouldn't even be talking about a runoff election between these two candidates if Warnock had actually delivered anything tangible to the people of Georgia to run on when he was elected to the Senate. He didn't. So here we are. And don't even get me started on Stacey Abrams, who lost again to Brian Kemp. But even before the election, we should have known what was up when Abrams began blaming black male voters for being too susceptible to misinformation to know what they want. Of course, an NBC News poll shows that 84 percent of black men who voted voted for Abrams and 93 percent of black women voted for her, proving that claim that black men didn't vote for her because they're too dumb not to be swayed by the lies to itself be a lie, as post-election polls always reflect when Democratic candidates claim that black men not voting for them is what did them in. No, what did Stacey Abrams in was white women, only 27% of whom voted for her. Hear what I'm saying. Out of all the white women who voted in the entire state of Georgia, only 27% of them voted for Stacey Abrams. And there are not enough black men alive who can make up for that massive rebuke. So... Democrats would do very well to never, ever throw black voters, especially black men, under the bus again. Drop that strategy, y'all. Black voters ain't never been your problem. In the end, the Democrats got beat up real bad and are limping into the general elections with a weak platform and even weaker messaging about it and a very unpopular and barely coherent president. As much as Trump candidates didn't do as well as predicted in the midterms, I still wouldn't count out a Trump run in 2024 and the serious potential of right-wing violence if he wins the presidency and definitely if he loses. Simply put, the Democrats really didn't win in these midterms, and America is still losing. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are now happy to be joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. 
Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark, and uh, a, a serious development uh, has taken place here in the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine, as Russia has announced a withdrawal of its forces from uh, Kherson. And uh, I think quite naturally, there's been a lot of uh, analysis about this, of course, uh, differing uh, uh, depending on how one views the conflict in and of itself. But I mean, just to get right into it, Mark. I mean, what motivated this move uh, from the Russian government to withdraw from Kherson? And uh, uh, what do you think it means uh, at this juncture in the war? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there is a lot of fog of war, fog of war going on. Everything is is not clear at the moment. Um, I, I don't think that there's many people that saw, if anyone who saw all this coming, not the way uh, that it is happening uh, before Russian defensive lines have even been breached, uh, before um, there's there's any move on Kherson city itself. But the uh, Russian, uh, the, the head of the Russian military and uh, Sir Vikan, the new uh, general, General Armageddon, in overall in charge of the intervention force in Ukraine, um, announced that they would be withdrawing from the right bank uh, of the Dnieper River in Harrison City. And they would be re- withdrawing to the left bank. And they said that this was necessary for uh, reasons of supply, that due to long-range strikes uh, by the Kiev regime, and and principally I think he's talking here to a a great extent about uh, Himar strikes that have destroyed bridges in Kherson and are a continual threat to the pontoon bridges that have been erected to uh, serve in their place. Uh, But also he talked specifically about what they feel is the very real possibility and threat that Kiev's continued targeting of the Kohovka uh, Reservoir Dam downstream uh, from Kherson City um, would lead to a catastrophe and an inundation not only of the entire theater, but for much of Kherson City for um, a number of days, making resupply uh, absolutely impossible. Um, And... uh, It has to be said that Kiev has been attacking this dam, including with HIMARS, for months. And just recently, they did again uh, over last weekend. And uh, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, out of six missiles, uh, five were shot down, one hit, but supposedly only did superficial damage. Um, This dam is also a bridge. It's also a hydroelectric station. And it also uh, provides the water source flowing into the Crimean Canal. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons for Russia to to see it its destruction as a big potential um, threat, and for for multiple reasons. Um, there's a lot of glooming and dooming and gnashing of teeth um, in Russia uh, from you know the the commentary from the military analysts from people within the military itself um, who question the necessity of this. Um, The the array of forces, as far as we can tell, is about 60,000 on the Kiev regime side, 
um, and about thirty to fifty thousand uh, on the Russian side, and that's just on the right bank of the Dnieper, which now all have to be evacuated, which would take several days and be very obvious and susceptible to attack itself uh, from Kiev regime artillery. So there's um, a, a lot going on there. Uh, to this point, all of the uh, attacks by the Kiev regime um, against these lines have been repulsed. Um, from Russian uh, artillery, uh, superior artillery, rocket systems, aviation, and uh, already some tens of thousands of the reservists that Russia has called up, particularly those that just got out of service a short time ago and so did not need a whole lot of retraining, um, have been bolstering the forces there. Kiev has been been talking about Russia flowing forces in, and it, actually they continue to talk about it. Uh, so it, there, was, there was not an immediate battlefield victory that resulted in this. This seems to be a strategic decision. And it has to be said that the Kiev regime doesn't believe it's real. They are still calling it a trap. The Kiev regime surrogate, the presidential advisor, Mikhail Podolok, um, was uh, commenting uh, uh, online on, on on Twitter that uh, they see no signs that this is real, uh, and the, the the everything out of Kiev has been extremely cautious about this. Uh, that the Russia is trying to lure them into a extended, uh, you know, an offensive extending their forces and exposing them to superior Russian fires. So uh, there's a lot of fog of war. Now, there's, I mean, the reasons given for pulling it back is saving military and civilian lives. Russia has withdrawn previously to when, not when they were beaten in the battlefield, but when they feared strategic envelopment. They did it in, in Kharkov, and it appears that they have done it here as well. So uh, they place a priority on on force preservation and, and fighting another day. They don't like to put themselves in a situation where they could suffer a real military defeat. Um, uh, also, um, the, the there's no question that the left bank of the Dnieper will be much easier to defend. A, a Kiev regime uh, crossing uh, would be very hard. Uh, it would be cause even more damage than they're charging across open steps to get to this point uh, has inflicted on the Kiev regime, which is uh, very high casualties. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of problems with this. One, it completely prevents any time in the foreseeable future any Russian move uh, further along the coast to Nikolaev and Odessa, right? because Russia would then have to take that river back under force, something that they didn't have to do the first time because when Russian intervention force first went into the South, the South basically just changed sides. There was, there was basically no fighting. Um, so um, also, um, the Kiev regime will then be able to put even more force uh, onto the other side of the Kherson region, um, where the Kohovka Reservoir Dam is itself. And if they take that area, then they'll, they'll be able to cut off flow of water to Crimea again, and they could potentially militarily threaten Crimea. In fact, just by taking the right bank of Kherson City, that puts some of their longer-range systems, including the HIMARS, in range of the northern parts of Crimea itself. Uh, so there's uh, a lot of 
political damage uh, to the uh, Putin administration, to the top military coming out right now, especially as this is a capital city of an area uh, previously of Ukraine that Russia uh, recognized as part of Russia, uh, according to the local referendum results. Uh, so this is is seen as a huge um, embarrassment, uh, humiliation. Um, Sir Vikan, the the new uh, general in charge of the entire intervention force, uh, nicknamed General Armageddon, he spoke about this. Uh, it seems when he first assumed uh, command in an interview of the entire uh, intervention force, and he said that difficult decisions may lie in the future. And it seems that this is probably what he was talking about. He was previously an advocate of pulling back from Harrison as it's not a long-term defendable position if an immediate move was not going to be made on Nikolaev and Odessa. But that was before um, the reservists were called up. It was before the um, beginning of the uh, Russian strategic strikes to take out the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure and thus inhibit their military logistics. So a lot has happened since then. A lot of people didn't see this in the cards. So let's wait a few days to let this fog of war clear up and see what the actual results of these announcements are going to be on the ground. Yeah, it does seem to me, as you explain things, Mark, that, you know, for as evil as Vladimir Putin is alleged to be, at least from uh, the the view of him here in the U.S. and in the West, I mean, Putin seems to be pretty willing to take the uh, political uh, and I guess the, the public hit the humiliation that it seems that this move is uh, portending uh, to avoid the needless catastrophe that you described of having uh, the dam destroyed. And that's a, that seems to be a part of this strategy. And that doesn't seem like a bad thing to me. And it's certainly not the way Volodymyr Zelensky and uh, his handlers in the U.S. and the NATO and NATO are operating. But I, I think this raises the question of the way this news is being reported in the U.S. and the reason that it's given for this happening, because the reason that we're being told is because there were 70 to 80,000 Russian casualties that caused uh, this uh, uh, drawback of Russian forces from Kherson. I know there's a lot of fog of war, but is there any truth to that claim that's being spread around in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think claims of those numbers of casualties are about as truthful of claims of the ghost of Kiev and the martyrdom of, of the uh, Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island with the FU Russian warship that never actually happened and no one was ever actually killed and they all surrendered without. I, I don't. I don't believe I it is not to say that Russian um, casualties and casualties is a number that always includes injured as well as killed in action and generally killed in action uh, tends to be somewhere around 10% of that total number. That still seems high to me. And if he was to say that about the Kiev regime forces, that would make a lot more sense to me. But of course, they're not going to talk about that because such pronouncements are essentially uh, propaganda. But I think you do make a good point uh, bringing up um, obviously, Vladimir Putin and all opponents of U.S. hegemony anywhere in the world are all always 
ruthless, brutal, evil monsters. I mean, that's what Western mainstream media tells us. So we can just completely discount any any concern over uh, troops or civilians' lives and fearing the destruction of the dam or or anything like that, because we all know that uh, you know evil people don't don't think that way, and all opponents of the U.S. are evil. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like you say, and as we've noted on the show, I mean, there's been a, you know, years long uh, running campaign of demonization against, you know, not only Vladimir Putin, but any government and any leader that uh, doesn't bow to uh, the whims of Washington. And this is kind of an aside, Mark, but, you know, this 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 uh, discussion we're having about uh, narratives and propaganda as it concerns Russia in general and this Ukraine war as a a whole, it's just been interesting to me to see, you know, people basically try to co-opt like progressive sounding language um, as part and parcel of what is fundamentally like a Russophobic politic emanating chiefly from uh, the U.S. and the West. And what I mean is uh, is framing the the, the Ukraine war as like a a war against uh, decolonization or war against, you know, quote unquote, Russian imperialism and things like that, almost invoking images of, you know, the national liberation struggles of the 60s and 70s. And, you know, what was what we what they called them, the third world, what we today might call the global south. You know what I mean? And to me, it feels like an effort to try to bring in a, a progressive minded people who will pick up on those words and what they're supposed to imply, basically in support of a U.S. imperialism and its role uh, uh, in this conflict. But I mean, to me, it's just kind of a, a thin veneer of uh, what is ultimately just a really destructive uh, a proxy war, uh, the, the potential of which could, you know, be quite great for humanity as we know it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that is a very good point. I've seen such language myself. It is laughable. Um, and it is a remarkably cynical attempt to turn the, the realities of the conflict on its head, uh, completely ignoring, of course, that the democratically elected, uh, however flawed government of Ukraine was overthrown in an openly U.S.-backed putsch in 2014, and the regime that seized power since uh, forming state-armed and funded neo unquestionably neo-Nazi Banderite fascist battalions sending them against its own people in you know what it claims were its own people in east ukraine to subjugate them to the seizure of power in kiev and the destruction uh and atrocities that they rained down on the cities and people of east ukraine but somehow that is an anti-imperialist struggle that is remarkably uh, cynical uh, attempt to to reverse uh, longstanding um, uh, uh, anti-hegemonic uh, narratives in that way. And I mean, for one of the reasons why this conflict is being fought and why uh, Russia felt the need to intervene, not only to to preserve the rights, the culture, the lives of the people of East Ukraine, uh, who were, you know, under threat uh, for the last eight years since the war in reality started eight years ago. But um, just uh, today, 
uh, I was just seeing this earlier from a, a Kiev regime uh, surrogate, uh, an advisor uh, to to the uh, foreign ministry, the Kiev regime's foreign ministry online on Twitter. Anton Garashenko just uh, uh, tweeted earlier today, for Russia to stop being a constant threat, we must focus on it decolonization. And and Putin has brought that up several times. Let's be clear about what these U.S. proxies in Kiev are talking about there. They're talking about a war on Russia and breaking up Russia. Uh, and to a large extent, that is what building up this geopolitically flipping Ukraine, building up its uh, regime and, and its military force as a, um, you know, a platform uh, to to launch military action against Russia, just as is being done with China, with Taiwan. Uh, these are very parallel situations we see from a hegemon, hegemon that is desperate to preserve um, its uh, primacy, uh, its uh, uh, unipolar moment uh, by what Rand Corporation has called the pressure cooker, uh, using uh, hook and crook in any means necessary to bring to power um, force political forces in the countries um, surrounding peer or near peer adversaries and uh, exploiting these divisions and using them as battle platforms uh, against those countries. And they do it very well. And they're doing it in Ukraine, and they have every intent of doing the same in Taiwan. Yeah, I tend to think that's the case. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we will be discussing the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kane, Mohawk activist and educator, producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. John, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And John, a little earlier this week, the Supreme Court seemed uh, somewhat split around the question of the constitutionality of a 1978 law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, which uh, at least ostensibly was uh, uh, passed to address this uh, dark history of what I think could only accurately be called a mass kidnapping of uh, indigenous children here in the United States. So, John, I was hoping you could help us understand, first of all, the context of this law itself. Why is it coming up now? And what do you make of these developments in the Supreme Court? Yeah, there's a couple of different factors, both um, relating to ICWA itself and to this challenge that's going on. So let me first say that I'm not a fan of ICWA because ICWA has, has some huge shortcomings. But I will say that ICWA played a big role in ending 
that era of residential schools, um, changing the landscape about how Native kids were being ripped out of, not only out of those residential schools, but out of out of homes, uh, put into foster care, and then uh, sent off to be raised by white people. Um, it did address that, but it didn't do it right. And and here's the problem with ICWA. ICWA is still enforced and uh, and implemented by by state child services, child protection services. It doesn't do anything to recognize our sovereignty. All it did was it gave federal guidelines for state child protection services to, um, by a federal mandate, prioritize placement of these children with either family members, either keeping them in their homes, uh, uh, placing with family members, uh, other people within the same, I hate to use the word tribe, but tribe, or at, and the, the last recourse would be place them with other Native, uh, native uh, families in general. So that's what ICWA did. You still had states seizing kids out of homes without any native involvement. ICWA doesn't even really elevate uh, the role of tribal courts and that, and that kind of stuff. It doesn't address us as nations uh, and our own authority or right or responsibility to our own children. Now, many of those, uh, uh, many native territories have relationships with the state courts. So I live in the Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz does take uh, priority over the care of children, placement of children, but you still have the state agencies are the ones who uh, who will remove a child from the home. So it, it, it's complicated. And it, what would have been better is if a, the federal law, and not just with this one, with so many other cases involving Native people, if there was a simple acknowledgement that we were a distinct, autonomous, uh, and, and sovereign people. Now, I know that that seems so um, final and so total uh, when you say it like that. But the reality is all the courts had to say is that Native people uh, had the right to to uh, determine the fate of their own children. And, and, and the nations themselves have that right. But instead, we, we still got a bit of a nanny state thing going on. You've got basically the Fed saying, well, we're going to create laws on what the states can do to Native kids. And we're not even a part of that question. So the challenge now, when a state says, well, we think this is government overreach and it's a violation of states' rights because the feds are trying to dictate to a state agency how to do their job. If, if there was an issue of sovereignty, if we say, no, we're not telling you to do anything with racial preferences. We're not telling you to do anything um, to treat uh, a segment of American society different from the rest of American society or citizenship or citizenry, I should say, we're saying, no, these are distinct people and they do have the right to have a, uh, a distinct set of uh, protocols for how they deal with their children. See, and that's where ICWA fell short and so many other federal laws. So that's, that's on one hand. Now, again, I'll acknowledge that it, that it did play a role in putting uh, a bit of an end to the uh, to the residential school era, but not completely, because all it really did was say the forced removal of children from from their homes to go to residential schools essentially would end. But I got to tell you, everybody says the residential schools existed from the mid 1800s to uh, again to 1978. Well, the law that created residential schools was in 1819, uh, and it was called the Civilization Act. And it may not have been a wholesale strategy across the country or national strategy, but it was already supporting church-run missionary schools and that kind of stuff. And 
in 78, 1978, when ICO was passed, residential schools still existed and they exist for another 20 or even 30 years. They just didn't didn't have the same authority to rip kids away from unwilling parents. But after four or five generations of parents going through that system, you had native parents that were willing to give their kids up. And which is, it gets even more complicated when you look at this case, the Brad King case, because you have a native woman who was obviously in a, a pretty rough place in her life, uh, who was willing to give up her kids. In fact, she, she terminated or, or had her parental rights terminated and they want to put a priority on her view to have her kids placed in this wealthy white family's home, uh, you know, to be either foster cared or adopted without any consideration to the nation that she, uh, that she is a part of. So it gets, it gets really complicated. It gets even more complicated. I know I'm not, not letting you guys go working edgewise yet, but let me finish one more thought on this, which is we also have a situation where there's been a hundred years of policy to drive native people off of reservations, off of native territories. And so now when we get hit with this thing, yeah, well, she didn't really live on a native territory and she might've been, you know, entitled to be a tribal member, but she hadn't fulfilled any of that. You know, she, she wasn't really enrolled. She was living you know, away from the Navajo nation. And she, and, and by some estimates, 70% of the native population does not live on native territories. So in other words, 70% is not living under a native government's uh, oversight. So where do, where do those people fit in? Are they now just Americans of native descent? Is, is the idea of being native only a racial designation as opposed to a citizenship or a, a culture or, or an ethnicity? And all of that stuff is getting complicated in this case because, you know, the, there's two claims being made uh, uh, out of the state of Texas, which is one, it is racially discriminatory because it's, it's, it's depriving native kids of the racial protections um, uh, or protections against racial discrimination, you know, by, by saying that a native kid has to be placed in a native family uh, or uh, in, into a native family. And then it's a government overreach uh, depriving the state, uh, uh, trying to curtail the state's rights. So those are the two issues. Wow. I mean, I'm really glad that you did break that down the way that you did, John, because I think the the complexities of this case uh, really do confuse people. But I'm wondering your thoughts about the idea that in a very strange way, this case kind of comes down to states' rights being used in defense of indigenous people's sovereignty and their their ability to protect the people uh, who exist, who live uh, under their allegedly government-recognized authority? And does the government recognize the state's rights, the tribal state's rights, to protect its people like that? And why it seems that, you know, conservative justices like Neil Gorsuch uh, and John Roberts who, again, are conservative, actually could come down on the side of protecting the rights of indigenous people. What strange bedfellows, it seems like, uh, are created in this case where states' rights seem to actually be, could be used in defense of indigenous people in this case when we know that states' rights really is a concept that has been used to discriminate against people who are non-European descended in this country. Well, I don't think I, I don't think the state's rights um, protection benefits us. 
at all. I, and I, I, so I think something's kind of a, a little bit twisted around in that. I mean, the, the states are saying they should be able to um, take a kid out of a household, regardless of race, ethnicity, or in, in the case that I'm talk, talking about, essentially native citizenship, that they can take a child out of home and place it where the state deems best. The argument is the federal government says, no, we're not going to tell you you can't take a child out of a home, but we're going to tell you what home you got to put them in. And, and so the question is, are those federal guidelines constitutional? But uh, getting back to Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch does have a tendency to rule in, uh, in the favor of Native people on a couple of cases. And we've seen this in the Oklahoma case uh, over land and that kind of stuff. So I'm not surprised that Gorsuch, is, uh, uh, Gorsuch may end up on the side of the, the Native defense of this. But uh, Robert, uh, he's, he's kind of hard to see. Sometimes he's always, he seems to be the swing vote sometimes on that court. So I guess it's not that much of a surprise. Yeah, and you know, honestly, John, looking at um, ICWA, it, it feels like just one of many examples we can point to of sort of the enduring legacy of uh, the genocide and colonialism against indigenous people uh, in what became the United States of America. Because if we look at, you know, what it was that uh, ICWA was uh, addressing, I mean, it, you know, this idea of just snatching uh, indigenous kids and putting them in white homes, it feels like the living uh, a sort of reality, this idea of, you know, quote unquote, killing the Indian, but saving the man, you know. This this idea that um, uh, indigenous culture, language, uh, folkways and mores must be completely supplanted by that of, you know, an Anglo Euro American identity, which is, you know, something that uh, I think a lot of uh, colonized and oppressed people experience, which, you know, has ripple effects throughout generations. And so it it really feels like we're still very much grappling with uh, the crimes against indigenous people in the U.S. And until those issues are addressed as a whole and from the root, then it feels like we're likely to keep running into these issues, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, let's, let's be honest here. Before the word genocide was even coined and we, and we talked about, you know, the, essentially the five, you know, or the five examples cited in the international definition of genocide, which, which include the re- includes the removal of children. It includes reproductive rights. It includes, you know, several of them, not just killing people. But um, before that, there was the term that was being widely used internationally it was called denationalization. The idea of stripping away a people's national character and supplanting that, uh, that national character or cultural character with that of a dominant, uh, another, you know, uh, oppressing dominant society, which is exactly what's going on here. I mean, you have to understand that the Supreme court in, uh, in the 1830s in those famous Cherokee cases, uh, um, about land removal and that kind of stuff, the Chief Justice John Marshall basically said native sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. And this is where the idea of the doctrine of Christian discovery becomes codified in U.S. law. They're already suggesting that any semblance of, of uh, native sovereignty is something that uh, the court was already wrestling with in the early 1800s. And and then there was there were there were some of those this this kind of white supremacy belief that the only way native people can survive is if they're assimilated. So when they passed the the Indian Civilization Act in in eighteen nineteen, they're saying 
either they're they're going to be transformed into uh, you know Americans or they must perish. And and that was widely spoken by many politicians of of the day for throughout the, that, that entire century. So the idea of trying to diminish our sovereignty and being real careful. I mean, I remember I remember when George Bush was uh, was president. Somebody asked him if he uh, what his thoughts were on tribal sovereignty, and and it was one of those classic foibles of George Bush where he he goes, "Well, tribal sovereignty means you know like sovereign tribes are, are sovereign," and and he just kind of just fumbles over himself. But that's emblematic of, of the way the federal government and state government has deal, dealt with this issue. It's funny the vast majority of Americans could understand that native people are distinct. They, they sometimes they, they mis, misspeak and they say, well, you're like a nation within a nation, which doesn't always make perfect sense either. But there's a, there's a better semblance or understanding out of the, uh, out of the rank and file American citizenship about the distinction of native people. You know, we get into sometimes this, this myth that, that we exist as dual citizens and that kind of stuff, which isn't really the case either. But I mean, it's the politicians that struggle so much with it. I mean, our, one of the reasons that I oppose voting in U.S. elections, especially if you live on a native territory, is you basically, when you fill out your registration form, you got to say that the place that you live at, and I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, I've got to say that my home address, where I live, is in New York State. And I say, no, it's not. Where I live is not a part of the county. It's not a part of the, uh, the townships around. It's not a part of New York State. It is the Seneca Nation. And I think it's very problematic that we're expected to sign a document that is supposed to be some sort of legal document just in order to vote in the U.S. elections that says the land that I live on. I mean, it's bad enough that we're saying that we, we are American citizens. Uh, we're, we're submitting to that, that imposition. But now we're going to sign away and say, say our land is part of the state just for elections, election purposes. See, these are things that that Native people have not ever properly addressed or wrestled with because they're complicated. ICWA may have had some great uh, uh, great benefits to Native people, but it still continued the legacy of the refusal of the federal government or the state governments. And, and again, it's up to the federal governments to recognize our sovereignty. The reality is, in some cases, we have better relationships with the states recognizing our distinction than we do with the federal government. I mean, even, even when it comes to things like taxes, we don't pay state taxes. But we're still fighting the, the federal government over federal taxes. So these are kind of examples. But I got to ask you one thing, Sean and Jackie. I mean, do you think that a black child should, should uh, in all likelihood, be uh, there should be a, a priority in placing that black child in a black household as opposed to a white household? I mean, just off the top. <laughs> Certainly not. Certainly not. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about some ongoing developments in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we are happy to be joined for this conversation by Kambali Musavuli, activist, writer and analyst with the Center for Research on the Congo, Kinshasa. Kambali, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really glad that you can come in uh, and talk to us about this latest development in uh, the Congo, where it appears that Kenya is set to spend $37 million on sending troops to the Democratic Republic of Congo. About a thousand troops uh, have been approved to be deployed for a new regional force in the DRC amid questions about that $37 million cost for just the first six months of the mission. Why is this being done and what mission is being carried out with the deployment of these troops, Kambali? Uh, the deployment of the Kenya force comes from discussion in the East African Community Bloc, uh, initially led by Uru Kenyatta, uh, to have a standby force from East African uh, community countries to help in the stopping rebels in the DRC. Uh, it's being presented that a military solution to the conflict will bring about peace and stability. Uh, we at the Center for Research on the Congo, we don't believe that's what will bring about stability. Uh, we also don't believe uh, that the solution uh, is much different than any military solution previous to this. Uh, for example, we've had SADC, the Southern African uh, Development uh, Community, send their troops to the DRC in 2012. They were able to stop the M23 militarily, but diplomatic pressure actually helped in uh, making the M23 disappear for almost a decade. Uh, we've had UN forces. Right? The UN has deployed uh, of uh, 19 to 20,000 soldiers in the DRC, that still has not stopped. So an additional uh, military force in DRC, uh, we don't believe will end the conflict. Uh, we see that as a symptomatic approach to a larger problem, a larger crisis in DRC. And that larger crisis is simple. Uh, two of the United States allies, Rwanda and Uganda, they have invaded the Congo twice in 96 and 98, and continue to support proxy rebel militias. Why? Because they want unfettered access to Congo's minerals, the cobalt, the lithium, uh, the gold, the tin, the tungsten. These minerals used in modern-day technology. As long as Congo is unstable, these resources will continue to be depleted from DRC. Millions will uh, die in the DRC uh, due to this conflict and we know what we work to stop the conflict. Yes, and in in accordance with uh, what you just said, with the uh, the ongoing conflict with Rwanda, Rwandan Ambassador Vincent Karega was ordered to leave the country, uh, to leave the DRC within 48 hours. Why was this done, and what role does his expulsion play in this ongoing conflict between the DRC, uh, Rwanda, and Kenya? Specifically, the expelling of uh, Rwanda's ambassador is coming a little too late. Uh, this has been a call by Congolese people themselves. Um, for the past two years, I would say probably uh, to be conservative, the past year, Congolese in Kinshasa have organized numerous protests in front of the Rwandan embassy in Kinshasa, asking for the Congolese government to expel the ambassador. 
uh, why were the Congolese people asking for that? The civil society groups that they all came in front of the Rwandan embassy. Because it is clear to the Congolese people that there is a rebel force in the RC that has a military might that they could not have had if it was for Rwanda. The M23 has night vision gargoyle. They have sophisticated, uh, sophisticated weaponry. So we knew already, as Congolese people, that one of our neighbors is uh, supporting rebel groups causing destabilization in the DRC. So the call already came. The first action of the Congolese government due to the pressure of the people was to stop a Rwandan business in the DRC. And that Rwandan business is the Rwandan airline called Rwanda. They were kicked out of the DRC around uh, June, where they could no longer fly in DRC up until today. The second action now is the uh, Rwandan ambassador. So we have to frame it from the perspective, it's not the Congolese government, it's the pressure by the Congolese people that the Congolese government is playing a dual game, where they're being soft on the diplomacy, and after 25 years of war, Congolese people are tired of this conflict. They know who is assaulting them, they know who is attacking them, and they're demanding answers from uh, the government. Yeah, and it seems that this uh, continued uh, uh, rebel activity that you mentioned has now, that's been ignored by uh, forces up to, uh, uh, government forces up to this point, have resulted in these rebel forces seizing two major towns, Kiwanja and Ruchuru, in the province of North Kivu. What is this rebel force and what does, you know, how serious is the fact that they have already seized control of major towns? The M23, anytime we will speak about them, we should not think of them in a silo uh, separate from Rwanda. Mm. Today we are calling them the M23. Yesterday they were called the CNDP. Before the CNDP they were called the RCD, and before RCD, they were called AFDL. I just share four acronyms of uh, rebel groups, but these four acronyms are the same rebel groups. The commander of the M23 today are the same soldiers from the AFDL in 1996. For those who follow closely Congo, they will know that in 1996, Rwanda and Uganda invaded the Congo. They used a rebel force called AFDL. So 25 years, they have a different name. We are clear they are that. But now, what's the problem? The fundamental, pro- uh, fundamental problem is not just uh, Rwanda supporting all the groups, right? The fundamental problem is that the conflict in this narrative has not changed, but there is lack of accountability. What does that mean? A country member of the African Union is violating the African Union Charter by addressing another nation. Even in the United Nations, there are no actions against Rwanda. You have the U.S. Secretary of State, Blinken, say in Kinshasa, in his last trip to Africa, when he came to Congo, that he believes that the evidence of Rwanda supporting rebel group uh, in the RC is credible. We don't need his moral statement for us to know that the evidence is true. He has just told the world that another nation is destabilizing the Congo and the U.S. is not taking action. Why am I taking offense to that? I'm taking offense to that because there is a U.S. law, Public Law 109.456, in Section 105, that says that the Secretary of State has the power to withhold aid to nations destabilizing the Congo. 
This is a U.S. law. So the Secretary of State said that he has credible evidence, yet he's not enforcing the law. So in the Congo, we are clear about this uh, duplicity, or I would say the, complex, uh, the complicity of the United States in the war in the Congo. They are the one arming the Rwandan military. They are the one equipping them and financing the military in tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. And one U.S. senator, Senator Menendez, continue to push pressure on Joe Biden. So I'm clear. I'm not dealing with Rwanda alone. I'm not dealing with Uganda alone. We are dealing with two nations, global nations, the United Kingdom and the United States, supporting an African nation that is a client state while they are destabilizing the Congo and they have blood of over 6 million Congolese in their hands. And, you know, when you speak about the blood of 6 million people on their hands, what has been the human toll just in the past few months of this ongoing uh, military offensive just since May uh, earlier this year? Dozens, tens of thousands of people have fled. Uh, But give us a deeper picture of the human toll of this ongoing violence, Kambali. The question you're asking is very difficult because we know people who are being displaced. We work with them. Some of them are family members. In the Congo today, over 5 million Congolese are internally displaced. 5 million Congolese are refugees due to this conflict. And the people who are most affected by this conflict are children and women. And thousands, countless of them, are being massacred and raped and displaced when a political narrative is actually being pushed. So when we look at conflict around the world, we should ask ourselves, how can we be on the radio show talking for this level of death toll, of Holocaust proportion, over 6 million Congolese dead, 500 million, uh, 5 million refugees, and countless uh, who are still being named by rebels, yet there is no global action. This is why Congolese are saying we have to take matters into our own hands, Yet, I still believe in what Kroma told us, that Congo's conflict, Congo's crisis is both internal and external. So to deal with our challenges, we must have global allies who are going to put pressure on negative forces while we are dealing with resolving the issues of the Congo so Congo can be free, as it was the hope of Patrice Lumumba, our first democratically elected prime minister. And what about the uh, support or the what the public feeling is toward uh, the administration of President Felix uh, Chesikedi in uh, the Congo? Because he did finally order the expulsion of the uh, Rwanda ambassador. But as you said, it was too little too late. So, you know, the people are moving things to be done, uh, moving for things to be done. But how are how is the mood toward the uh, Chisiketi government among the people? And do you get the feeling that his days may be numbered as well as there is no peace in the Congo as of yet? Felix Chisiketi uh is today the president of the Congo. Uh, it is believed, with information that's already available, that he did not win the election. So Congolese people know that we have an illegitimate government. But we have to deal with our issue, uh, where we, we are imposed a leader, and then we are being asked to solve the problem with a leader that was imposed on us. This is what happened with Mobutu uh, in the past, who led the Congo for 32 years. The reason why is shifting is due to 
popular pressure of the Congolese exposing his, uh, the contradiction of his regime. As he became president of the Congo, he visited Washington, and the first place he went to was the World Bank, and he met with mining companies. Congolese were surprised. Why was he doing that? After that, he had a regional tour where he actually went to Rwanda in Kigali. He went to the genocide memorial. He pretty much kneeled, bowed his head at the memorial, and he had a press conference in Kigali where he said, at the surprise of Congolese people, that the deaths of millions in the Congo was collateral damage and that Congo should move forward, which is against the popular will of the Congolese, where the Congolese are calling for justice and for the creation of the International Tribunal for Congo. So now that he is coming closer uh, to the Congolese population, it's because he sees the contradiction of the uh, complicity of the United States and Rwanda in not dealing with the issue. What do, do I mean by that? In May of this year, of 2022, at the surprise of everyone, evidence were presented that the country he believed was an ally to him, Rwanda, was actually arming, equipping rebels, and also having Rwandan Defense Force soldiers with them. This is according to the UN Group of Experts report that was submitted to the UN Security Council. So that shocked him. I'm pretty sure it shocked his government. And that he was forced to get closer to the position of the people. But because of the conditions of the people, the cost of living, the inflation, no peace and stability, and knowing also that in 2023 is the next election, which means they would have been in power now for five years and must organize election. Congolese people are demanding a leadership that represents their interests and their will, and they will go in the street and vote for their interest. That's the challenge he has. He must also demonstrate to the Congolese people that in the past five years, he's been able to achieve objectives that he, he said that he would uh, bring. He promised that he would bring peace to the Congo. After five years, there is no peace. And we know why there is no peace. He did not follow the will of the people. So he does have a tough job. But what's most important for us is what the Congolese people want. They want a free and liberated Congo where they're able to choose their leaders rather than having leaders imposed on them by the international community. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Kambale, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, November 10th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at 
all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. That's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, time today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, some uh, pretty spicy commentary coming from a former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, as it pertains to uh, Donald Trump and his impact on how Republicans fared during the midterms. And uh, yeah, I'm talking about an interview that Ryan gave to WISN 12 News uh, at an event that Paul Ryan was at in his hometown of Janesville, Wisconsin. When asked about how he thought ab- about uh, how uh, midterms played out for Republicans, he said, quote, I think we're going to have to do a lot of soul searching and head scratching, looking through and parsing the numbers as to why we didn't perform as well as we would have liked to. Ron got reelected. Talking about Ron DeSantis. Ron got reelected. I'm very happy to see that. It was a mixed blessing night, but we should have done better than we did. And, uh, you know, when asked about uh, the role of Donald Trump in this, he said, quote, I think Trump's kind of a drag on our ticket. I think Donald Trump gives us problems politically. We lost the House, the Senate, and the White House in two years when Trump was on the ballot or in office. I think we just have some Trump hangover. I think he's a drag on our office, on our races. Mm. And when asked about the possibility of Trump announcing a 2024 run for president, he said, quote, I mean, I assume he's going to announce, but I honestly don't think he'll get the nomination at the end of the day. Wow. We want to win. We want to win the White House, and we know with Trump we're so much more likely to lose. Just look at the difference between votes between Trump candidates and non-Trump-aligned candidates. It's really clear to me, and the evidence is pretty stark, that if we have a nominee not named Trump, we're so much more likely to win the White House than if our candidates named Trump. So he's going out of his way to uh, slam Trump. And and of all the Republicans uh, that he could have congratulated, he made it a point to say he was happy to see Ron DeSantis reelected. 
I, it really feels like there's going to be some smoke in the city with these Republicans in the next couple of years. I'm feeling that. As it pertains to 2024, uh, uh, as, uh, you know, a famous wrestling commentator, Jim Ross, would say, a uh, slobber knocker. <laughs> and I, for one, cannot wait to see it. Yes. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Nepa Freeman, coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and host of Voices with Visions on WPFW 89.3 FM. Nepa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Nefa, of course, we're still uh, uh, like much of the country sort of analyzing and processing the uh, uh, results of the U.S. midterms this year. And you published a piece on Black Agenda Report called A Revolutionary Lens on U.S. Elections. And I think it's important to have that kind of lens, to have that kind of perspective and analysis on U.S. elections, not only in terms of how they played out, but for what it might uh, 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 say about the moment we're in in the United States where, uh, you know, the the sort of American uh, bourgeois democratic apparatus as we know it is crumbling as a result of the capitalist system upon which it is built crumbles as well. And uh, you note in your piece about how, you know, uh, people centered organizations don't really have much of a role in uh, the U.S. elections, which are basically just about uh, the American people choosing between which ring of the, the ruling class is going to rule over them for the next two or four years. And so to begin, I was hoping you could break down, you know, why do you think it's important to not only have a revolutionary lens on these uh, uh, elections, but uh, also just kind of wondering uh, uh, your estimation of how the elections have played out up until this point? Mm. <laughs> So that's the tall one. I mean, I was listening to your your intro, and, and it's all very interesting. I think that, you know, it is a contestation between two wings of du- the duopoly, um, one being, you know, with the Republican Party, which, which if we look at a, a historical materialist, I guess, uh, I, don't, I don't like to use these kind of words without you know, any consideration for people who they don't need less for, but uh, um, though... So the, the the Republicans, if we look at throughout history right now, in this moment that we're looking at with the crisis of capitalism, crisis of imperialism, the system, represent a more, you know, I, I guess a, a, they think that they're indigenous to the United States. They have a more shamelessly white supremacist ethos to them. Uh, they are more extreme uh, conservativeness. Um, and then you have the Democrats that are just shamelessly neoliberal. They're not really thinking about um, the, you know, the the nationalistic type of thing so much. But they also neither one. And we're talking about the leadership of these parties, and then the and the the those that they'll they'll try to appeal to. Um, so the Republicans, they, they can actually have more of a, you know, a, an appeal to a more to more of the working class uh, sector of the working class of white people that are in the U.S. The Democrats are just shamelessly neoliberal. They have to try to get votes from those of us who, you know, like black people and other working class and pretend to be, the, to pretend to be more progressive, to pretend to be the, like they're and more, I don't want to say socialistic, but they also are dependent on being anti, you know, socialism, anti-capitalism, anti, uh, anti-people and for neoliberalism. 
And so what we're seeing here is that contest between these two wings, both of them really representing essentially just, you know, settler colonialism, all that kind of stuff that it takes to maintain the system. Some are just better at, you know, talking about it a different way. And we're in the crisis of capitalism. We've seen the the Democratic Party, when it's in control of, of the House and the Senate and even in the White House, uh, cannot actually deliver on not even the, I won't say that they'll say they, they can't deliver on their promises. Their promises are also things that they, of their own make it. We don't see, uh, when we talk about people-centered and people-centered demands, people-centered interests, that would require us having a mass movement that the people are deciding what are the top issues. When, they, when we hear them talk about the, the taking polls, of exit polls, when people are coming out and saying what the top issues are, and this, I think it was, uh, first was abortion, then inflation, and then you next after that was crime and then other things following it. We actually have to consider that these are more, not that these aren't in some way issues that are relevant or impacting the lives of people, but they're also really just the talking points of uh, capitalist media. The people haven't really been able to come together on the, and among themselves in any kind of process and determine what our interests are fundamental interest that it would even nullify those other things as issues like the human, the right to health care, the right to a job, the right to, you know, uh, um, all kind, you know, the human rights, all those kind of things. Um, and even crime being affected by the availability of food and, you know, all these kind of things. Um, so the, the petty crime we're experiencing. So we, so people are being polled about interest that they sort of are, I will almost say, I don't, I don't want to sound insulting, but they were almost programmed to, to look at. We're not really assessing the, the plethora of issues that impact the, the whole society as a result of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and those, so those things are marginalized. So we have some people who are even intellectual, uh, and I would say, to, so trying to, I don't want to get too far with your question. I may have even forgotten the essence of it, but that we, we are in a time that if the electoral process is to be of any value in our in the movement to uh, to transform the system from something that's profit oriented and and you know white supremacist by nature, um, patriarchal capitalist, all that kind of stuff. If it's to serve that at all, then the people have to be able to depose the two capitalist parties. They, they, we have to create and build a formidable alternative that are not that addresses that's addressing the people's needs right now as best it can survival, and at the same time accomplishes the credibility and confidence from the people to be able to enter into the electoral arena as some sort of a party or something like that. It's an alternative. Is, is, that, is that clear? What I'm um, the way I'm saying it. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely clear. And, you know, particularly, Netva, as we are, you know, now dealing with the aftermath of the election where of the midterm elections where, you know, the Democrats are actually framing <laughs> losing how uh, 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 seats in the House, though not as many seats in the House as a win because they haven't lost control of the House of Representatives. And so far, until we find out what the result of this runoff election in Georgia will be. So far, they haven't lost control of the Senate. I mean, we're we're still looking at a, a an apparatus within 
the community of black people in particular, since, you know, black folks are the Democratic Party's, you know, bedrock base. And and not only are we the 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 voting base for the Democratic Party, we're also like the the go to um, uh, scapegoat for when the Democrats actually lose. Right. Because when they lose, they always claim black folks didn't come out and vote for them for them. But the polls always prove that not to be true. But there is this apparatus in the in the aftermath of this uh, uh, lackluster midterm uh, election for the Democrats that are shoring up the the case for continuing for the black community to continue to support the Democratic Party. And they're using this thing of, well, you know, look, we have to keep voting for Democrats to keep uh, the, the, the rising tide of fascism from getting worse, from getting bigger. We have to keep this fascism. And when they say fascism, they're talking literally about Donald Trump and the Republican Party in check. And and what does that kind of, of, of thing, what does that kind of apparatus serve, particularly from a revolutionary perspective for people who are still fighting for, honestly, self-determination in domestic colonies here in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, it's- it's interesting. I, I would, it's so it fundamentally it discounts the conditions that have that have uh, persisted for colonized people in this country for since the time it was established as the United States of America. So every all the characteristics that we might be able to identify, all those things that we might identify that define fascism have applied to us ever since we've been here, and has in fact intensified. And those aspects of it. Uh, most of the, a lot of times have intensified over the last, let's say, uh, tw- I would say, uh, what's the 20, 20 some years. And have intensified not just under some Republican thing. In fact, a lot has been under the Democrats. Uh, surveillance, the increases of police, um, the, you know, the repression of, the, of uh, our movements, our political movements. Um, we still, we, over in Finland, we have political prisoners that can't see the light of day. Um, and so, there are all of these things, these tenets of fascism, other, us, um, even now, a more, uh, what do you call it, technologically sophisticated use of social media, big tech companies, all of that, which has made it even more in, uh, uh, made possible for them to not only surveil us and get, you know, what do you call it, uh, profiles and things like that on people, but to even promote and propagate ideas and insidious ideas, insidiously uh, and propagate ideas and and create and uh, execute what would be considered psychological warfare against the people we don't even know, and we don't even really see clearly what what it is we're up against and what, who are are really you know uh, who is our, in our interest. And so, um, so then you have even those who the, the of black people and uh, not just black people, non-white people of a more privileged class, petty bourgeois to bourgeoisie. Who, you know, they accept the propaganda of of the ruling class that you know the the fascism, this whole fascism notion, and the, the impending you know threat to quote unquote the democracy, you know, as if there's ever been a democracy for any. And then and they also make that's where the a lot of the scapegoating comes in and the, and kind of the scolding of our people that you can't if you don't see uh, the reason. To make sure that the Republicans aren't in, and these elements that, that like Donald Trump represents, and all that, you're not really you're 
you're either being unresponsible or you're being, you know, not seeing things clearly or pro- properly. Um, and so, that, so for one thing, you said that is one of the things that that is true is that the the statistics show that our people are turning out for like the Democratic Party and whatnot. But the statistics also show, we, and we mostly a lot of these statistics generally look at registered voters and those who are eligible to vote, and those but those who just disengage from the process all entirely are not really examined. And and definitely, and we're not even examined in terms of race, con, you know, race demographics or class or or gender or any of that kind of stuff. This is a large portion of the U.S. population that doesn't even engage in the electoral process. And then, if we look also at a study, studies, there's been studies like one in 2014 that was done by. Um, the universities in, in Princeton and that showed that this is not that the U.S. Um, and the electoral process and those who, who are in control of the electoral process don't serve the interests of working class and regular people, but they actually serve the interests of rich people by and large and working class people's interests aren't, don't even enter into the picture. And that the, the conclusion of that is that this is the U.S. is not a democracy. It's an oligarchy, which we could have told that, but they've done the actual empirical study of that. Um, and this is an oligarchy, but we're told we have to save a democracy. We're not saving democracy. We have, you know, if people are voting for either of these parties, they're safeguarding the oligarchy. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. I think that that was a pretty slick promotional tool, if you will, that Joe Biden and the Democrats sort of use as saying that um, democracy itself is on the ballot or at stake uh, in the United States through these midterms. Now, on now we maintain on the show that you know the far right is uh, and has been you know mounting an assault against a uh, basic uh, uh, democratic rights. But uh, like you say, considering the the, the class character of uh, the political and economic systems here in the United States, um, it's ultimately all designed to uh, protect the profits of uh, that small, wealthy class. And so since that uh, 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 sort of that real context of it is frankly kept uh, away from uh, the consciousness of uh, the broad masses of poor working and oppressed people in the United States, uh, you know, we're, we're taught that Democracy itself is uh, encapsulated and embodied, if you will, in the act of voting itself. And so electoralism then becomes synonymous with democracy. And when you have a capitalist ruling class that is uh, actually in control of the electoral processes, well, then the real uh, uh, aspect of it, I think, becomes more and more clear. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC, we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 2 
0252113201320. Myself and Jackie Lumon continue to be joined by Nepa Freeman. And we have a caller on the line here. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Um, so I have a comment, but I have a question as well. So my comment is about liberals in general. I feel like they kind of have a sort of almost like gambling addiction-esque way of looking at the problems in the world, just sort of this false hope that something's going to change, something will happen in our favor, and so we don't need to get organized. We don't need to be revolutionary. We just need to vote, and hopefully something will happen. Um, but my question is related to something y'all were talking about a few days ago um, regarding imperialism and, and kind of enemies of imperialism and how even people on the left will characterize like Iran or Russia as reactionary and stuff like that. And I was curious if you, if you have thought about or have heard people talk about the idea that imperialism enables some of these like bourgeois nationalist people to remain in power maybe longer than, than they should in terms of like, I mean, say what you will about Putin, they, the Russians didn't get involved in the global war on terror, and that could be a pretty big you know, schism between them and the West. But in general, I feel like the threat of imperialism and the very real threat of imperialism kind of can allow more reactionary populist people to stay in power as they rightfully defend their nation when if there weren't those external forces, you know, the people of Russia might be able to do something about it. They, their opposition party, the Communist Party, is one of the largest in the world. Um, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on how kind of the indirect impacts of imperialism and why it's so important to stand against it, even if you don't particularly like the politics of any said country, that it's a sort of it's a stumbling block that they have to get over no matter what. And we should be, you know, hoping for the end of imperialism to allow these people to have self-determination and sovereignty over their own countries. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate the question. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Nepa Freeman, your thoughts? Hmm. I, you know, I, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't, I haven't really given much thought to in terms of how, I mean, this kind of, of, of question is, it seems to um, make an assessment of in other countries that I don't, I don't always go. And I'm not saying, you know, that I'm right or that the person shouldn't, doesn't have any kind of point. I just don't you know. I know that we could, we could easily make the case that um, imperialism, um, that the countries that, you know, have to stand up against imperialism have to be preoccupied with whatever that struggle entails for them, those that will stand up against it. And then that might even mean um, a uh, secondary, putting secondary the uh, um, a struggle for more revolutionary government or leadership within their countries. I, I don't know. Um, and maybe I'm just not clear enough on the dynamics of, you know, what happens in places. Um, I, um, but I, we know that, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not really at a loss. I mean, I'm not really at a, a position to really comment much on that. Um, we, yeah, we just know the primary, the primary contradiction in the world is imperialism in every country. Yeah. Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts? Yeah. I always think of, of, of that in terms of, what is our idea of a quote unquote bad leader in another country? Right. right. This is this is the thing that I that I always kind of struggle with when I'm I'm assessing um, leadership in another country. Like, what is it that they do as leaders of their country that I find so objectionable that makes me think I actually have a right to have an opinion 
about how they govern their own countries. Shouldn't I be looking at how people in their own countries in those other countries respond to that leadership and and taking their cue, those people's cue about whether they want my input on their leaders or not? Because th- this is the thing I think we have to keep in mind about other countries. Um, you know, leaders in other countries, most of them are democratically democratically elected. Vladimir Putin was elected. He didn't just wake up one day and decide, as someone said in a forum that I was participating in once, who is actually a history professor at one point. He was a retired history professor. And he said Putin became president because, well, he just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to be president of Russia. And I just nearly lost my mind because I'm like, whose children were you teaching history to if you thought that happened? (laughs) Putin was elected, which means the people of Russia wanted him to lead them. If they're unhappy with his leadership, they have within their means the mechanism to get rid of him. They could very well be unhappy with some of the decisions he's making right now. So it, it might we might see some type of change in Russian leadership happen. But the only reason we are even concerned about whether Vladimir Putin in particular remains the leader of Russia is because of this anti-Russia indoctrination that we've been subjected to certainly since the 2016 election, but definitely right along with the anti-communism and the Red Scare business that has been going on in this country since the end of World War II. So I'm always careful when I'm going into a conversation thinking about, you know, is 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 a bad leader sticking around too long the result in unintended consequence of imperialism? Not because that might not be a valid argument or question, Sean, but because I think the first thing in that in that 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 question I have to deal with is what is a bad leader and and why do I have the right to say that another country's leader is not a good leader for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I think on the one hand, it's kind of difficult to say, um, you know, how the politics in different countries may shift um, in the absence of U.S. imperialism. I don't doubt that they would. But, uh, uh, you know, in in terms of how that would play out, it's difficult to say. But having said that, uh, you know, picking up on what Jackie was talking about, a part of the problem with people in the United States is... We think of the entire world as being beholden to particularly American definitions, styles, and processes of democracy, uh, elections, all these sorts of things, how the, how the public participates in politics. We think that the whole world should or maybe some may even think that the whole world actually does function on a kind of similar system as the United States. But that's just not true. I mean, these countries, uh, uh, they, of course, have their own cultures, their own histories, their own uh, folkways and mores and ways of considering uh, democracy and all of its sort of different forms that don't have anything to do uh, with the U.S. and the West. And so uh, using that ignorance, it's actually a part of how these countries are able to be demonized so easily um, to the American peoples that we just know uh, so little about them. 
And so they can be, you know, countries like Russia or China or Cuba or Iran or the DPRK can be presented as like these exotic, weird places where they, you know, do these strange things. And yeah, they have elections, but they're not real. And what Jackie is saying is true. Vladimir Putin is the choice of the people of Russia. Bashar al-Assad is the choice of the people of Syria. Uh, Nicolas Maduro is the choice of the people of Venezuela. Uh, we were talking with Ting's Chaka just uh, last week about the incredibly high uh, uh, approval rating of the Chinese Communist Party, not according to statistics from the party, but from Western sources. You know what I mean? And so, so that aspect of things gets completely left out of a lot of the conversations around uh, imperialism and uh, uh, democracy, which is pretty ironic considering that a lot of people who, you know, seek to make some of these governments just, you know, the absolute most demonic forces on earth that claim to care so much about, quote unquote, the people of this or that uh, uh, country as if there's some uh, amorphous blob with no uh, uh, class, cultural or political uh, distinctions or or differences. They claim to care so much about these people, but by attacking these governments, they're often contradicting the actual uh, uh, opinion of these countries. So it, it's frankly a chauvinistic way of uh, considering the world that I think is distinctly uh, uh, American. It's how we see ideas of um, American exceptionalism sort of trickle down into the consciousness of the American people. And even when we talk about how um, you know, people, even uh, uh, people uh, ostensibly on the left will accuse uh, countries like uh, China and Russia of imperialism. I mean, it's clear to me seeing how so many of these uh, uh, um, conversations play out that a lot of people's concept of imperialism is just kind of baseless. Like it's not it's not rooted in anything. And I mean, speaking for myself, I base my own uh, concept of imperialism on that which was advanced by uh, uh, Vladimir Lenin. And I think a lot of what he wrote all that time ago still holds true. And in the time since Lenin, there have been a lot of people uh, uh, that have developed upon a, a lot of these ideas about imperialism. You know, Walter Rodney, Ho Chi Minh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, France Fanon, you know what I mean? And so there's a deep well of uh, uh, content as it pertains to that. But people just seem to think that, uh, you know, imperialism is big country does something. And when those same countries are demonized to them incessantly by uh, the U.S. government and uh, uh, the corporate media, well, then that's why we get so many of these backwards ideas about uh, geopolitics. And this is why I say, you know, people in the U.S. were the most uh, uh, propagandized people on Earth. And, uh, you know, Americans think they're sophisticated and well-informed. But in truth, you know, we're being fed a steady diet of distortions. But we're going to uh, we have another caller on the line here. Dave, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, happy Thursday, y'all. I, uh, I want to uh, approach the conversation from a slightly different standpoint. Um there's something about the Stacey Abrams uh, repeated running for office that I think is somewhat of a pattern, um, not unique to the DNC, but I, I want to focus on the DNC. And it just sounds and feels like profoundly undemocratic. Um, you know, she ran, I just looked it up, she ran in the Democratic primary for, for this year's governor in, in Atlanta uncontested. So, uh, you know, how could a major party in the state of Georgia or any state have an uncontested election? 
it just seems like, you know, she's, she's being plucked by the DNC and some sort of, sort of like internal reward and patronage and favor system to keep being propped up as a candidate and sort of being imposed on people. And I see like this commonality sort of between Stacey Abrams and Hillary, you know, the, the DNC keeps propping up these candidates imposing them on the people. And then it becomes like a psychological and, a, and an emotional manipulation to make us feel guilty that we haven't voted hard enough to give these people a can, uh, an office that they deserve. Um, it's almost like, you know, Hillary deserved the presidency because her husband cheated on her or whatever, or Stacey Abrams deserves the governor office because she's, she would be the first black woman or whatever. And it, it just seems like a profoundly undemocratic process, which we know, but I, I just feel like when the, the DNC keeps propping up a candidate over and over again, that the people keep rejecting over and over again, um, it just, it just leads to these ridiculous outcomes. Um, so if you could, just comment on that or speak to that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dave, for calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Nepa, your thoughts? Yeah. So I think that, you know, we have to be, first, can I say this about the, the previous, uh, I like what you both said about the previous uh, topic and, and, the, and the other question about the, and, and just to say one of the things, a, a gauge that we could use to test our, how much it gets into our psyche is how we apply the term regime. We replied to the term regime. People don't see the term regime when they refer to the U.S. government, the U.S., the capitalist regime. And so, you know, that, that in itself is maybe a little a little bit of a test. And um, but back to this this question that just came up, I think we, when we remember that both of these parties are dominated by ruling class interests and ruling class people, the whole process of nomination, and all that, they have to be preoccupied and, and it attracts the most opportunist elements in terms of candidates and people that prop up the most opportunist people who that are amenable to the, to the rich and corporate interests and all that. And these are basically antics that are happening. Like what, what the call described They're the antics that, that the democratic and the DNC goes to particularly trying to uh, keep power away from the Republicans and GOP at any particular, at any particular time or election and keep the uh, people in the minds of, of the uh, in the in the forefront of their minds, these various personalities. Now we know that in the process in the U.S. in the U.S. allows for other people to run, it's for people to run. They throw their hat in the ring, but there's a lots of people. I bet I'm willing to bet that no, not bet. We know that there are people who run as Democratic Party, run as candidates under the Democratic Party, but they actually have different uh, principles and values and interests they might put forth. That's the reason why we don't hear about them, because those things don't they run counter to, you know, being beholden to corporate interests and all that kind of stuff. If you're able to say, in fact, I know a person in uh, in in Maryland, they didn't run for as high office as the House or anything, but they ran for something else in P.C. County and they they ran on the Democratic ticket. I'm not going to say the name, but they had all this socialism and stuff in their platform and they were sold basically iced out. Uh, you know, isolated out of the process and people look down on them. And she realized, she learned that you had to be part of all these clubs and all this kind of stuff. The, the system is designed. I mean, they're not just putting forth, uh, you know, they have, they have to do this with every candidate. We're, we're spoon fit every person that we have to vote for when it comes, when it's up to the left to the, the, uh, the uh, Republican and Democratic Party, especially the higher up in the ladder you get on this level of state, you know, the legislature and, 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 the, and the presidency, 
you know, we don't, people aren't really in control of the process of nomination. And it has to be that way um, in order for the ruling class to sustain, to keep themselves in power. Jackie Lugman. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true when the Democratic Party decides, whether it's at the national level, whether it's at the state level, when the Democratic Party decides who they want the people to vote for, not not who they want to back in uh, whatever race it is. It literally is a decision that the DNC makes, the Democratic Party makes in uh, deciding who you get to vote for. And I know that's true because we're not only talking about uh, the the party uh, choosing one person to run uncontested. We're also talking about the Democratic Party that goes to court The DNC goes to court and sues in states as they have done in this midterm election and in previous elections to kick Green Party candidates off the ballot in certain states. So the Democratic Party is very responsible for limiting the choices, the the so-called Democratic choices, since we're supposed to be so afraid of the Republican fascists. The Democratic Party are responsible for limiting your Democratic choices for who to vote for who are not Republicans. So they're literally telling people you can only vote for Republicans or Democrats and of Democrats in certain places. These are the ones you're only going to vote for. That's that's the Democratic Party. (laughs) Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Nefa Freeman is here. Shout out to the by any means uh, necessary chat. Um, always a, a lively discussion happening there. Uh, it seems some folks weren't aware that they didn't see this video of Herschel Walker mm-hmm. on the campaign stage. And I I don't know what the context of this was, right? <laughs> but Herschel, he was like dancing. Not well. No. He's not a good dancer. His his little son, uh, Christian, that don't really like him too much. I was actually, I was looking at a video of him dancing and he uh, luckily uh, did not get his dancing skills from his father. But, uh, but what trips me out about it is, I swear, towards the end of the video, you hear like a little, um, like a little uh, cut, if you will, like a little piece of the song he's mm-hmm. dancing to. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's Crossroads by Bone Thugs That's and Harmony. what I thought too. Which is just... What like that's not a song you dance to. First of all, <laughs> that you know, like it's literally a song about how you miss all the people you love that died. I like that—that's that, what that song's about. And that's like, wait, has he killed people now? Is, yeah, is that just, like the subliminal message that we're you know <laughs> of all of all the campaign songs? I just don't know why you would pick "Crossroads" by Bone Thugs and Harmony. I mean, at least be honest. Do for the love of money or something. You know, got to get that money, man. I mean, that that works. Anyway, uh, Fidel813 
uh, said a little earlier, uh, this country uh, bombing, sanctioning the world, spreading racism and capitalism and imperialism, overthrowing governments, and we're supposed to hate Putin. I mean, yeah, that's that's uh, uh, the point. And see, there's a very dishonest analysis out there about, um, frankly, anti-imperialist politics, real anti-imperialist politics, that it suggests that those of us who take this stance that we take, whether it's on the question of Russia and Ukraine or whatever, is that we're basically excusing uh, uh, Russian aggression or the Russian invasion of Ukraine simply because the U.S. is also guilty of warmongering and invasion. But this is the shallow uh, understanding of what uh, imperialism even is. The fact of the matter is the U.S. as the world's dominant global uh, hegemon is at the root and is often the instigator and facilitator of a lot of uh, uh, the conflicts and wars and frankly the suffering that we see across the world. We're talking about the most vicious and expansive empire this world has ever known. And it has to be engaged in these wars and conflicts in order to maintain itself. So yes, they're going to be responsible for a, a lot of these things, including facilitating Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, we already know that uh, prior to the invasion, the U.S. steadfastly uh, refused to honor uh, uh, Russia's red lines, to honor their national security concerns. Now, that doesn't mean that the Russian government had to invade Ukraine, but Washington understood very well that they were putting the Russian governments back up against the wall, and they knew that that, uh, you know, what, what Russia calls a special military operation in Ukraine was absolutely a, a, a high likelihood of something to happen. So this is uh, uh, what we mean. But when your politic is fundamentally pro-imperialist, like uh, a lot of people, even unfortunately, some folks who call themselves progressives and socialists and revolutionaries, this is what we come up with. And on that note, Nephil, what's clear on so many levels, whether we're talking about the midterm elections or uh, the war in Ukraine or so many issues, both internal and external to the U.S., it's obvious. As you noted earlier, not only that imperialism is the core contradiction, but uh, uh, how crucial it is in this moment to build a principled, militant, uh, broad-based, uh, anti-imperialist movement that can really fight for real peace. Because the opposite of that could be a catastrophic a war that may uh, a devastate humanity and life on this planet as we know it. And when we talk about the black liberation struggle in the United States, both historically and up until this very day, uh, is a very, very important role to play. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and we're often told you know, when people start talking about electropolitics, and this is what black people those of us who represent or are trying to uphold the radical black tradition, our position when it comes to electoral politics, our positions are mischaracterized. And a lot of people say, oh, you, you know, you're telling people to ignore, are you saying we should ignore electoral politics and we should wait for conditions to get so bad that black people are going to rise up and have a revolution and uh, as if things could be so simple or if we could even have that. It's kind of insulting to think that our analysis is so simple. But one thing is clear, that one elect, uh, election, and as you actually pointed out earlier, democracy is more than just pulling a vote, pulling a lever in a voting booth. It has to involve more. And, and we talk, start talking about participatory democracy and, and community control where people are coming together in communities 
and exercising some this collective decision making and implementation uh, implementation of their and enactment of their decisions. So that's power, right? And that that type of political process, um, that 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 type of political activity, should be combined and uh, and and should be the way we approach electoral politics in this country. Because without that then we're leaving it up only to the capitalist parties who these parties who have no intention of really changing the paradigm the unsustainable nature of things you know climate change all this stuff the you know the the illogic and reactionary nature of neoliberalism and all those things they're not going to change any of that and for us to be for us to be told that there's this impending fascism that only the Republicans represent because it's really represented by both of them because they ha- they have to. In other words, what, what you just said, we have to do it. It's not just we, we should or will. Con- things won't just continue on the same path. They will get worse. It's referred to it as a, a race to the bottom. But we have to we we have to make sure that and and this is somewhat of a criticism of some people that, you know, I guess I would consider our colleagues or, or, or comrades in the radical black tradition is that we should allow them to mischaracterize our positions as saying we should abstain from the, the electoral process. What we are saying is that we should not be voting for these parties and when we engage in it, and that we have to do the hard work uh, um, and to protract the work and, and probably hopefully as quickly as we can before we, the world is destroyed the world of, of, Creating an elect, a formidable electoral um, challenge, an alternative um, that 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 emerges from the struggle of the people, you know, the activities of the people. That's what we mean by people-centered. It meets it's meeting the people's approval because the people created it, and that's what people-centered means. And so, right now, the the we I would con- condemn as the the petty bourgeois. Um, intellectuals who want to see themselves as leftists, as black radicals, or whatever, who say we need to still, you know, vote. They don't ever say vote Democratic Party, but it kind of implies that when you say we got to make sure that the Republicans don't get in and they don't control the House and the Senate and all that, then then you're actually talking about sustaining the status, the status quo that has never done anything for us. We have to do the hard work of deposing these two parties. So um, not just punishing them for not come, coming to the uh, for not meeting the needs of the people, but deposing them because they'll never do that. And, and so and this means us, uh, you know, doing revolutionary work, uh, challenging legally, building survival programs, but at the same time, and, but connecting that that work with an electoral challenge. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate what you just said about the race to the bottom. That's something we need to be clear about as things continue to develop is that they will, in fact, only get worse. Um, And this is a complete aside. Uh, Manny Nile in the chat says, uh, I was mad when black Greek orgs started making policy saying you couldn't wear letters at political events. Uh, But now I wish uh, they would pull that rule back. I actually have experience with that. I I was at a Freddie Gray rally in Baltimore uh, some years back. And I remember this was after the announcement came down that all the cops involved had been indicted. Of course, all of them eventually got off. But, uh, you know, there was like this mass rally in Baltimore. I'm holding a bunch of signs that say, you know, uh, justice for Freddie Gray, jail killer cop, stuff like that. And a young lady walks up to me in her sorority letters. They're all there together. And she asked for, you know, one of our signs, handed it to her. No problem. Uh, just continue kind of standing there chilling. A couple minutes later, she comes back, gives me back the sign and says, I can't hold this sign uh, while I'm in my letters. And I was like, wow. 
wow. And I wasn't, there was a while where I wasn't sure whether it was like an official rule with the organizations or if they were just kind of, you know, you know, if it's kind of a casual thing, but definitely a note would say the very least, but I'm sorry, I Jackie Luke. That, that I think is so indicative of the weakness of the petted bourgeois organizations that exist in communities uh, that are marginalized that are, you know, domestic colonies in the U.S. You, you here, here you are at a rally, for, you know, calling for justice after the death of Freddie Gray. And you can't hold up a sign for a black man killed by the cops because you and your Greek letters get the heck out of here. Um, <laughs> <it's> not, <laughs> but I, I think the the way that we can engage and the way that I think we do engage with electoral politics is when we do get involved in ballot initiatives that are people driven because Netfa, I mean, in the battle, in the midterm elections this year, like slavery was literally on the ballot in several states. Right. Because people, I think, do forget that um, slavery actually is legal under the Constitution if you are convicted of a crime, which is why slavery is prison labor. Or you can say prison labor is the new slavery today, as we know that incarcerated people, our incarcerated brothers and sisters, are subjected to slave policies while they are in prison, because the Constitution says that they can. And literally on the ballot in several states this year, in Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont, they chose to end the exception to slavery in their state constitutions. So in those three states, people can no longer use slave labor to make their lingerie, underwear, furniture, you know, whatever, for cheap slave labor. Uh, but several other states really fought and uh, to to oppose that measure in many other states. So is this the kind of thing where people power does show up in a positive way in electoral politics? And, and what do you say about the need to get behind more of that? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Because this is exactly what we need to get behind. And actually, we need to buttress the use of it. Because this is where we can have the most impact. The, lo- the more local things are, the, the more power that we have and that we can exercise. And then that can also be, go, uh, have a bottom-up effect, too. So we, have to, we actually have to not only have these initiatives, like, for example, this one, where you, we're actually voting against slavery and it actually being implemented, but we also need to use this to build on the process, to build on the movement, to use them actually for organizing and, and power shifting. So in this instance, there's not really a power shift. It's, it's a great thing. It does alleviate some things. But we want to we do things also through ballot initiatives and, uh, and referendums, because we, we only have that, people only have that in the U.S. on the on the municipal or citywide level and the state level. There's no, there's no unlike all these unlike all these countries that the United States like to say aren't democratic, there's no right to national referendum in the United States. We can't vote on policy on the national level. It's all up to, you know, these, these legislators. Um, and But on the local level, we need to put forth initiatives that, uh, that shift power. I mean, you know, I'm, I don't want to just mention this one, but there's a list, for example, community control of the police. We need to put things, oh, shift, shift power to give people the right to control health care and things like that, give people you know, human rights and that they're a uh, right to, uh, and that uh, rest 
the consolidation and the implementation in formidable bodies like people's assemblies and things like that on the local level and community assemblies. And that uh, this requires us to also be organized. And we use, like, for example, the ballot initiative, the, the referendum that you mentioned, it was, you know, that that took um, some groundwork for people to engage in. They had to get petitions signed. At first, you had to do the process of politically educating people about this initiative and then get it passed through the electoral uh, commission and put it on the ballot, fashion the language, all that kind of stuff. We can actually create those types of initiatives that include people that require people to be organized and on a permanent basis and not just to go in, oh, I'm going to pull this level for this ballot initiative, and then it's done, and then we accomplish something. We want to make this a permanent feature in the society that we want to build, that people um, are able and have the, the ability and their right to weigh in on the, the plethora of issues that can directly impact, in fact, decide them. Decide what these issues are. Not only decide what the issues are and what the solutions are, but this, but determine who the implementation of them, and not just leave it up for them to be implemented for the those, the, the representatives in this so-called the representative democracy, if you will, but really the oligarchy that we live in. Yeah. And, you know, what you're talking about in terms of the people's organizations and these assemblies is so important because what we're talking about is a higher level of participation in democracy. And this is precisely what we see in countries like, you know, Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and others that we can name these, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, you could think of them as hyperlocal uh, types of uh, uh, groupings that sort of serve as the uh, uh, fundamental unit or the primary unit of democracy in that country. And it flows from that primary unit, whether it's a commune or a CDR or whatever it's called or however it's formulated in that particular country and how it flows from there all the way up to uh, uh, the highest levels of government where eventually, you know, these things get passed into law and things like that. You all have heard me talk about before how I saw this process play out in Cuba a few years back when they were uh, uh, amending their constitution. And so it, it when you look at that, and this goes right back to what we were saying uh, uh, before about um, what democracy looks like around the world and how the U.S., in its, you know, imperial hubris, thinks that it has the only worthwhile system when, I mean, you take a good look around, and I just think that the proof is in the pudding on, on that question, but particularly when we talk about fighting for and bringing about a new society in the United States, a socialist society and system in the United States, that, in my humble opinion, is going to require a similar kind of a network of these people's organizations and assemblies like uh, uh, NEFA is describing. And so when you have these grassroots organizations um, under the auspices of a socialist state that understands that it only exists to provide for the needs of its people and to uplift the conditions of its people. This is what uh, uh, creates that momentum and creates a situation where people's fundamental needs are finally met. But we don't have anything like that in the United States. Certainly there are a ton of organizations. That's not what I'm saying. But in terms of the ability for people on a mass level 
to be actively involved and engaged in how politics uh, 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 play out in this country is simply not there outside of walking in the ballot booth and casting a vote, which is a fine thing to do. But I want to reiterate again that the mere act of that is not democracy in and of itself. So you and I have to be about the business of building the movement that's going to be the vehicle to bring about this uh, situation where uh, uh, the politics of the United States is actually controlled by the people, by the masses of poor, working and oppressed folks of this country and take the power to determine our destiny out of the hands of the capitalist, out of the hands of the ruling class that only want to bleed us dry. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Neffa Freeman, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.